0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. From the time she was a little girl, Kayone Wolf had a dream.
2: I want to eat more onions than anyone. People will never understand the training she goes through. Christmas, birthdays, vacations. When other kids were out having fun, she was expanding her ability to eat onions. I started winning some of the local onion-eating contests, but the goal was always to get to Walla Walla, and then the big one, Vidalia. Texas was important, too. I'd been told that Texas had some really good onion-eaters, but when I got there, there were just a bunch of...
1: I wish you wouldn't talk like that.
2: I was sitting next to her at Thanksgiving one year, and my eyes started watering. You know how that happens when you cut up onions? Well, it was just coming from Kyone.
3: Kion Wolf has dominated competitive onion eating for 16 years, but suddenly there's a challenger. I went to a monastery in Tibet for six months, and I didn't speak to anyone, and I became an onion. When I eat an onion now, it's just the circle of life. They call me the esophagus, and I will win Videlia this year.
0: Kion Wolf is my hero. I think she inspires a lot of young women. I really want to be like her. I ate one and a half onions, and
2: then I threw up for three days. I can eat 50 regulation onions in 10 minutes. If the esophagus thinks he can beat me using this woo-woo crap, he's welcome to try. But he's a little...
1: I don't know if the onions have anything to do with this, but the rest of the family doesn't talk that way.
2: Today on the show, enter the world of competitive eating. Hot dogs, wings, cannolis, wontons. Personally, I don't see the challenge there. Cannolis? Eat 25 onions and then come talk to me. But don't stand too close. And now, wearing the purple Nexium trunks, Colin McEnroe.
3: Yeah, I'm so not a competitive eater. Uh, You know, if you have reflux, you just... uh You're happy if you just get through the day, basically. So we are going to talk about the world of competitive eating. And it may be a slightly different world than you suspect. If your idea of competitive eating is, you know, a blueberry pie eating contest at a country fair, or even if maybe you're sort of aware of the fact that, yeah, there's this big one that's on ESPN. I'm not sure. Well, I know that until we started pulling the show together and producer Betsy Kaplan started uh, doing uh, the intense research, I I know that I didn't understand all this. So let me tell you who we're going to be talking to today in just a second. You're going to meet Barry Rothbard. He's a comedian and actor and a co-director with Jeff Cerulli of the documentary Hungry, uh, which is a pr- very compelling documentary about this very world that we are going to take you into today. Uh, but we're going to start out uh, from the Argo Studios in New York City with Crazy Legs Conti. He is a competitive eater uh, and the subject uh, of Crazy Legs Conti, the art and zen of competitive eating. Welcome to our show. Thank you. I am uh, hungry and focused. All right. That's good. So give us a sense of uh, of maybe what your year is like. How many of these contests do you do, you do and, and what kinds of things do you eat and, and how many of those things?
4: Well, Major League Eating is the governing body of all stomach-centric sports, and they do about 60 events a year in terms of contests all around the nation, sometimes around the world. Most sponsors are food companies like Nathan's Hot Dogs or Hooters Chicken Wings. But other times, it might be a festival like the Three Rivers Festival in Virginia, and pepperoni rolls would be the local specialty there. As a competitive eater, I not only eat in contests, roughly about 25 a year, but I do media or appearances or exhibitions. So my tally for eating large meals very fast in the course of a year might be around 40, Mm-hmm. Um, and that includes doing one-minute sprints of Rouse's crawfish or Acme oysters in media leading up to those two contests in New Orleans.
3: And and so um, so let's pick something where people might have some concept of what it's like to eat, say more than one anyway, of what you're eating. So whether it's uh, – you decide. I don't know what your specialties okay. are, um, whether it's hot well, dogs this, or, or – or, but give us kind of year, a sense. Yeah.
4: This year, I I won for the fourth time the Corn on the Cob eating championship at uh, the Sweet Corn Fiesta in West Palm Beach, Florida. Most people might have two ears of corn, I'm guessing, at a a, a meal. I had uh, 43 ears of corn in 12 minutes, and that was enough for me to uh, win by uh, one ear of corn.
3: You uh, f- uh, I have a whole bunch of questions about that. Every game uh, has rules. So when I eat uh, uh, corn on the cob, I, I mean, I'm pretty thorough about it and everything, but there might be, you know, stray kernels left here and there. So how do they judge completeness when, you, when you're eating corn on the cob?
4: There is actually uh, just one judge. You need to eat um, within two kernels of either side. Mm-hmm. Uh, the former judge was the head of the Agricultural Bureau, but obviously the job was much too stressful, um, so <laughs> he passed it on to uh, Sean Wrecking Brockard, a retired competitive eater, who has to sift through you know, upwards of 50 years making deductions. Depending on your technique, if it's the toilet paper roll where you spin it, it's very clean in the middle. If it's the rake where you bring it down on your lower um, jaw and gums, a lot sprays onto the competitive next to you or onto the, the plate – I use the um reverse typewriter. I go left, right, left. I don't make the ding sound, I swallow, mm-hmm. and then the last um two rows are a little rack learned ear, so they do deduct um generally about between you know three and five ears of corn in the co- in the course of the contest
3: um <laughs> You're you're uh, not in this uh, for, for no reason whatsoever as an amateur, and you're also not in it necessarily for your health, although we'll come to that later. Uh, you're in it for the money uh, to at least a certain degree and the glory. Um, how, how much do you make? Uh, what's the purse if you win the, the, the corn on, on the cob-eating contest?
4: In major eating, you, you pay your way to the contest. You pay your flight and accommodations, and then you win it back in prize money. So I was fortunate in first prize to win $2,500. That's a pretty— hefty first prize on the circuit, but other ones are weighted more heavily depending on the field. A lot of times the prizes go down to seven places, so you get a pretty big field. I can generally win my money back, um, but I'm not necessarily going for the funds. Um, My reasons for being a major league eater may have changed over the years. At, At first, it was really for the competition and the subculture, the free food, the groupies. Now I enjoy the travel, I enjoy um, sort of going to places I wouldn't normally go to, talking to people about food, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but in 2009, Major Eating partnered with Navy Entertainment, and we've done six tours of duty entertaining sailor soldiers and all the divisions of the armed forces around the globe. So I've eaten hot dogs to entertain at uh, Gitmo and bases in Japan, Italy, and Greece, Guam, and South Korea. So that is really the reason I stay in the sport is both the altruism of entertaining the military but also the notion of, you know, when parents tell their kids you should finish your vegetables, I don't think the kid is thinking, well, one day maybe I'll be the fourth-time Corn on the Cob eating champion and someone will want to send me to Guam to eat ramen noodles and entertain... You know the armed forces. <laughs>
3: um, could we just back up about uh, eight sentences? Um, groupies. I mean, after yeah, a, I after that people might watch be the you, one that yeah.
4: uh, you would question. Well, uh, for many years later in my career, I uh, had a girlfriend, so I was mostly a wingman. But right. um, early, uh, yes, early uh, places you'd go where you were literally fresh meat in town, and you were on the TV at the bar at the after party. Mostly cities where um, food is appreciated, so Buffalo, New York, or St. Louis, anywhere in Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Sheboygan, where women like beer and bratwurst, that would be a hotbed for competitive eating groupies. But um, I'd say we have some stories to tell that, that probably can't be told on the on the radio. And at the most, uh, it's enjoyable to go out and have a good time and to be with your. Your friends. I mean, ultimately we compete, but there is a brotherhood and sisterhood of the stomach. There is camaraderie at the table and certainly after um, when you're at a bar and you're talking to the locals.
3: Um, well, certainly what happens in Sheboygan stays in Sheboygan. And, and I'm glad to hear because on those reality shows, they always say, I'm not here to make friends. But it sounds like you, you do make friends. I would, though, I assume you don't like everybody. And, you know, even watching the, the documentary, we're going to add Barry to this conversation very quickly, but watching the documentary, you sort of look at uh, this guy, Kobayashi, who, who, you know, redefined the sport, although there's other people now who've, who've gone in one, one or many hot dogs better. Um, but I couldn't, I didn't really necessarily see a lot of people buddying up to this guy? I mean, do, does everybody like everybody, or are there, are there real uh, flat-out feuds?
4: Well, I mean, the, at the top of the game, at the, the maelstrom of meat, the center of the table, um, there's been a historical need for rivals to drive each other to greater heights. Mm-hmm. Uh, major Eating and Women this year, you the Blackwood of Thomas, the longtime champion, greatest female eater of all time, is challenged by Mickey Sudo. Traditionally, Takara Kobayashi, was so far ahead of the field, he would lap the field. The world record was 25. He did 50. When Joey Joss Chestnut came along and believed he could beat uh, Takaro, they had a rivalry for a long time, mostly fueled by Joey's competitiveness. Um, Takaru is an incredibly competitive person, but I am very proud to call him a friend. I visited him in Japan when he lived there in Nagoya, we ate uh, fugu, the, the deadly oh, yeah. blowfish, one of the greatest meals of my life at the Nagoya International Hotel. And he lives in New York. I, I don't get to see him as much as I used to, in part perhaps because I'm still a major league eater and he's not. But what people don't realize, perhaps because he doesn't speak English, is he is a, a wonderful, sweet individual. I think if he wasn't a competitive eater, he'd be a veterinarian. He loves animals. Mm-hmm. Um, what is my take with Takera Kobayashi? It's simply he's one of the greats and he's such a wonderful person that I saw no uh, need to be a rival, but I never challenged him in Hot Dogs the way Joey did. So there are rivalries, but uh, the hope is in most cases when you're at the after party and you're away from the table, there's an understanding that not too many people in the world do this and we should – you know, raise a beer or smoke a victory cigar and enjoy the moment.
3: All right. As we go along here, if you have questions... We're live here in the afternoon. Our number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. We've already had one call about sort of the health issues about this, I should say. In our final segment today, we will be talking to Dr. Mark Levine, who's a gastrointestinal radiologist at UPenn and the author of a study uh, on competitive speed eating. So if you have questions about that particular thing, maybe just hold it uh, till we, we get to, towards the end of this. Uh, I am going to add to the conversation um, uh, another guest, and that's Barry Rock. Rothbart, as I say, comedian, actor, co-director with Jeff Cerulli of the documentary Hungry. So, um, Barry Rothbart, um, welcome to the show. Hi, Colin. uh, In this documentary, you're you're telling one big story, the big story of competitive eating, and a whole group of sort of sub-stories, stories that, that sit below this. But one of the stories you're telling is is one of the ones that uh, Crazy Legs Conti has just alluded to, and that I've alluded to, too, which is this sort of magic and bird, Ali and Frasier-type rivalry between these two competitive eaters, that uh, when Kobayashi came on the scene, the record for the most hot dogs that could be eaten in, in 12 minutes uh, at the Nathan's contest was somewhere uh, around 25. Um, I'll let you pick up the story from there
1: um okay yeah so first of all i you know i don't think that the film um it tells the entire story of competitive eating and you know we're we're telling it from the angle of the eaters that we're following and Mm -hmm. you know i think there's a lot of debate about what the actual origins of competitive eating were and you know we do have someone who claims to be an expert, and we believe he is an expert, on competitive eating named Gersh Kuntzman. Mm-hmm. And he did work for Major League Eating for a very long time, and uh, he was a judge, and he did have a lot of insight in the history of competitive eating. But our film does revolve, like you said, mostly around uh, Kobayashi and the two other eaters, um, Dave U.S. Mail Goldstein and Brad Shulow, and, um, and their conflict with Major League Eating. And so, yet yeah, as far as Joey Chestnut and Kobayashi, yeah, I mean, Kobayashi came on the scene in uh, 2001. And he was, um, he, the, at the time, the hot dog record was 25. And, uh, and he came in and, and doubled it and did, ate 50 hot dogs. And at that time, I believe it was 12 minutes. Right. And, um, and, yeah, and, and it was incredible. And, you know, I, we speak at length to the fact that it changed the sport immediately. And um, it was very unexpected, especially since he was so diminutive, he was so small, and he, he was not the prototype, even though there, there were Japanese eaters at that time who were eating a lot, you know, he was not, he didn't look like what you would expect an eater to look like, so it was pretty incredible.
3: Um, you know, one of the things that we know from other uh, um, experiences in sports is that there is this kind of paradigm shift that can happen. At one moment, nobody can run a four-minute mile, uh, and then you know, Roger Bannister does it, and then suddenly a lot of people can do it. Uh, this seemed to kind of happen with hot dog eating, too. Once uh, Kobayashi broke through that twenty, that 50 hot dog plateau, other people came along. Now 50 hot dogs is maybe not even such a big deal. and, and, and you Yeah. Know,
1: I guess you have to ask yourself, at what point does the human body stop? At what point can you just not do anymore? You know, like if somebody does 80, can a person do 90 then? You well, know, yeah. You know, at what point does the human body reach its limits? And a sense that uh, was also a fact that we we tried to explore.
3: Yeah, I sense. Crazy Legs uh, getting ready to chime in here. So let me ask you this: I mean, one of the ways it's expressed, Crazy Legs, in the movie by various competitive eaters is like how much pain can you stand? Is does that what it get? Is that what it gets down to? I mean, at the upper upper limits, I- is it just a question of who can tolerate? Um, the most pain and discomfort, or is there something else also that that, that makes the difference between, you know, an A grade and, and a B plus?
4: Well, certainly, you know, I've run the New York Marathon. I've run the Boston Marathon. I think about the 10 minutes of hot dog eating as a marathon. Certainly the guys at the center of the table, it's an aerobic activity. It is grueling. Um, but in terms of is it a pain threshold, I actually think it is something else. I think that... Um, Perhaps physiologically, Takara Kobayashi's body chemistry is is different than most other humans, but it's the mind. the The stomach can fill up, but the mind never can. And I think when you see Joey Chestnut in hot dogs, he he loses in other. He just lost to Matt Megatoad Stony, who came in second on July fourth in Slug Burgers in, in Corinth, Mississippi. This is one week after beating uh, Stony in hot dogs. So it's not that Joey is undefeated across every food discipline, but there's something in his makeup, and I would add perhaps it's it's somewhat controversial in that he reminds me of Mike Tyson in the ring or Lance Armstrong on a bike. Those aren't guys who are traditional athletic heroes. There is something that drove Joey to need to hate Takaro to next to him during the contest and even after the contest. And Joey's not been a gracious winner Since Tecaro's left Major League Eating, he still needs to hold that grudge. And I asked him one time, I said, you know, this is a a nice guy. And aside from the competition, what do you have against him? He's like, I actually have nothing against him. I need to hate him for myself to perform, for my mind to fool itself into getting to 60 hot dogs and buns. Only five people in history have eaten over 50. So I still think the 50 hot dog barrier is uh, pretty impressive. But uh, three people have made it over 60.
3: And you never know what will happen later on. I mean, uh, Magic and Bird became incredibly close friends in sports retirement, as did McEnroe and Borg. So, you know, you, you never know. Things uh, things do change. But th- that since we're making these kinds of analogies, uh, those that I just made, yours to to marathon running, this brings up the question, and Barry, I'm going to let you uh, start this one off, about whether we're talking about a sport. ESPN now carries this. That doesn't necessarily make it a sport. Um, but then that raises the question of what would make it a sport. So Barry Rothbart, uh, a documentary maker, first, um, is competitive eating a sport in the way that we think of sports,
1: well, I, I believe that it is, and I, I believe that it can be bigger. Um, we spoke to um, to Tony Hawk, and what Tony Hawk said was, it has some similarities to the early days of skateboarding, whereas you know there were certain personalities who rose above the above the rest, and it made other people want to practice harder and get better and better, and you know then you have a lot of people that are pushing the limits of what uh, an average person could do. And I think that, 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 was the, the main argument. And then there was a counter argument that major league eating is, is not allowing this because they are very picky in the, in the way that they choose their eaters and that they don't compensate eaters properly. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it, if it's going to turn into a sport, it should be a business like anything else. And I think one of the, the main driving forces that made a sport like skateboarding into what it is was sponsorship money and allowing people to think that if they try, if they practice hard that they could one day earn what Tony Hawk would earn or that they could earn what other other uh, skateboarders would be able to earn. And I think that very few people are able to earn money right now in competitive eating because I think it's, it's a very um, – It it is very niche. It's a very niche sport, but I think it's also not... Uh, spread out evenly and eaters are not allowed to find their own sponsors
3: well I, you know I want to come to that and I'm very interested in the whole sort of economic dynamics of uh, major league eating but to me that has little to do with whether something's a sport or not I mean if you think about the the origins of the Olympics until quite recently the whole notion of the Olympics which represented the apex of sports was amateurism you know I mean in, until recently the whole idea of compensation that could get you disqualified from the Olympics for, for much of the history uh, of that sport although there were with these discussions about whether the Russian national hockey team, you know, were professionals, but it seems to me whether you get money or not it has nothing to do with something's a sport. I'm- oh
1: no, absolutely. I wasn't saying. I think that 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 could promote the growth of the sport, but I, I believe it. I believe it's a sport. I, we've heard a counter argument that it's not a sport because it doesn't provide something that makes the human body better. It 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 you train to make it. Um, able to take abuse but with with most most other sports you could do something that would actually make you more fit as a human whereas this might not do anything as a human being but uh you know i think i think that's up to interpretation for what you define
3: as a sport well let's go to crazy legs about that uh, go sure. ahead yeah. i
4: guess i have a couple thoughts one in terms of the notion of you know sports improving the body or taking abuse we did uh I was on a show with a Badlands Booker called Wife Swap, and his the swap partner was a professional female boxer, and she was concerned about competitive eating. And I said, I, you know, what you do away from the table is definitely a concern, especially a big guy like Badlands. But at its core, boxing is, you know, two people punching each other in the head until one of them falls down unconscious. I think eating too many hot dogs might be safer than that. I did a show um, with Sean uh, White, you talk about the Olympics, who would have guessed that snowboarding would go from a recreational activity to a sport in the Olympics. He was um, kind of fetid as a hero. They plugged his clothing line, they couldn't say enough nice things about him and his sport. I got on and they attacked me for causing world hunger, obesity and various other things. So competitive eating certainly has some hot button issues is maybe at its infancy in terms of gaining traction. And in terms of the Olympics, the first marathon, they were allowed to eat and drink and do whatever they took to run the marathon. At the end, they decided to celebrate the distance as opposed to the consumption. So... I don't think we'll be an Olympic sport anytime soon, but I do think we are clearly a sport and uh, we're here to stay.
3: Let me ask you one follow-up question and then we're gonna to go to a break. Um, so Floyd Mayweather is out there some right now somewhere right now uh, skipping rope and, and hitting a bag and stuff like that. And um, do you are you training every day? Is there, are there things that you will do today uh, or tomorrow that are, are part of your maintenance to keep yourself in shape to be a competitive eater?
4: Absolutely. Uh, 13 years ago, it was big guys who would go to all-you-can-eat buffets and use competitive eating as a crutch. Today, you have to be in traditional athletic shape. You have to be in great shape. You look at almost all of the eaters across the board. We have two big guys left, and that's it. Everyone else is... Tim Eater X Janice is at the gym right now. Um, Adrian the Rabbit Morgan is jogging right now. People are not only burning the calories they eat in competitive eating... But they're focused on making their body as lean, as mean, and as much of an eating processing machine as possible for that six to ten minute contest.
3: Um, I should say by the way that boxers jump rope, not skip rope. I don't want Floyd Mayweather coming in here and punching me. Uh, all right, so we're gonna um, grab a quick break here when we come back we'll we'll talk more about the structure of competitive meat eating. Do feel as though you can call in 860 7266 You can tweet us at WNPR Colin.
2: I'm finna get a hot job. I'm finna get a hot dog.
3: Here we go. We're back. Uh, and we're going to start out with uh, some uh, voices from the streets gathered by our own intern, Katie Pikus. She asked people what food people would eat if they were to eat competitively. If
1: you could eat one food competitively, what food would it be? Ice cream.
3: Watermelon, and I would kill
0: everybody.
2: I'm going to go with watermelon, too, but I'd give you a run for your money. Ice cream. Pasta. Popcorn.
0: Ice cream. Chocolate cake. <laughs> I guess pizza.
2: <laughs> Ice cream. Pizza. When I go out to eat, I try to finish my food first.
3: All right. So that's a small kind of competitive eating. So um, I want to come back uh, to our guest here, Crazy Legs Conti, a competitive eater in the subject of Crazy Legs Conti, the art and zen of competitive eating. Uh, Barry Rothbart is with us. He is the uh, co-director with Jeff Cerulli of the documentary Hungry, which is about the world of competitive eating, as seen through two, three specific competitive eaters. And so Barry Rothbart, um, and, and this is going to be interesting, too, because I think I know you and Crazy Legs have, have different um, takes on this. Uh, but one of the things that you do in this documentary is to look at this uh, league, uh, I guess that's the right word. It's the overarching organization that, uh, as um, Crazy Legs Conti said, uh, oversees uh, all stomach-centric competition. Uh, at least it oversees its own world of stomach-centric competition, all these competitive eating events. It's Major League Eating. It's basically two brothers. Um, and one of the things that you suggest uh, in, in talking to some of the competitive eaters who are unhappy within that world, it, it's all. I mean, it does almost remember remind me a little bit of you know, the the eight men out, the story of the Black Sox scandal of 1919 where Charles Comiskey just didn't pay his players anywhere near what they really were, were worth to him. You sort of you sketch out a world in which the advertising revenue from these events is worth in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and whereas the, the competitive eaters would share a much smaller, much, much smaller purse. You want to elaborate on that? And, and then we'll get uh, Crazy Legs take on it, too.
1: Sure, I'd love to. Um, well, first of all, the um, it's something called ad equivalency, and it was based on an article that this uh, this writer Dana Rubenstein wrote in Bloomberg Business Week, and it, it it stated the ad equivalency is in the hundreds of millions of dollars for the Nathan's event, solely for the Nathan's event, and it's it's not exactly what they would make in earnings, but their earnings are estimated in uh, by her in the tens of millions of dollars. So and. The total prize is given out. They was stated in the article as five hundred thousand dollars. That's total for the year for all years. And I, and you know what 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 it basically is is and it's not the only governing body. There are smaller ones that many people don't know about um, that are more independent and that do other events. But they are the large one because they have Nathan's and Nathan's has ESPN and they have the TV rights and that's that's what everyone knows. That's the the landmark event in in competitive eating so what they have though is they have the ability to get eaters under contracts because everybody does want to compete in Nathan's and they want to do the bigger events and these contracts are in by some accounts very abusive financially abusive and controlling and I think a lot of the eaters have been leaving because of these contracts Kobayashi left uh, one of the top eaters Pat Bertoletti just left the the league to to do his own independent events and I, and I think that that, by some accounts, is hurting the sport.
3: And the, the, when you say abusive, these contracts uh, not only govern um, the purses and, and the kind of thing, thing that the eaters get in the competitions, but supposedly they also restrict the eaters in terms of co- promotional activities that they can do, tie-ins that they can do. They can only do them with representation Absolutely. from a MLE, and then they share in the money yeah. with MLE.
1: Well, what, what Pat Bertaletti said, and he was the number two ranked eater for a very long time right underneath Joey Chestnut, um, what he said is uh, they basically act as your employer and your agent, which is a conflict of interest. You're not allowed to have your own agent, which means you're, n- you're not allowed to have sponsorship money that they don't approve of. And, you know, basically that means you're not allowed to have your own sponsors. You're also not allowed to make appearances that they don't approve of. And you're not allowed to eat in any contest that they don't approve of. So basically, if you sign this contract, the only money that you can make from competitive eating is everything that they approve of which means that you can't do local contests. You know, we had an instance where Brad Shula wanted to do a charity event because one of his friends died of cancer, and he wanted to do a, a charity eating event, and they just wouldn't allow
3: it. And now, Grizzly Legs Conti, I, I can tell already from some of the things you said in the first segment that you, that you feel as though this is a system where you, you really have been able to thrive.
4: Well, I think there's a, a flip side to it. Um, Pat Bertoletti, who I spent the evening of July 4th and July 5th with, Owns a food truck called Glutton Force Five with another former competitive eater, Gravy Brown. He has a taco in a bag um, restaurant in a suburb of Chicago. So his reasons for leaving, I think, may be beyond contractual ones. But the things that are provided through being in Major League Eating are goals I never had for myself that have come true. Because of major league eating, would I ever be an avatar in a video game? Would I ever be on Letterman or Emerald or in The Sopranos? Opportunities have come along from the league. Have there been appearances or TV shows that I've been denied? Absolutely. I was a coworker and a friend of Morgan Spurlock, and he asked me to eat 100 chicken nuggets for supersize me. The league did not want me to do it because perhaps it would be seen as gluttonous. Would I have liked to have been in Super Size Me? Absolutely. But the trade-offs you make, I think, are similar to any other professional organization. There's a reason that Rajon Rondo plays for the Boston Celtics at the new Boston Garden and not, you know, charging 20 bucks at a high school court to see him play pickup. Are there opportunities he's denied by, you know, being a pro athlete in the NBA? Possibly. I know he can't put out his own rap album without approval. So I feel that major eating, is it um, a perfect world in terms of eaters getting a sponsorship? No. And they've worked on that to get clothing sponsorship or other sponsorships. And currently, Joey Jaws Chestnut, the one, number one eater, is the only person without another job. He makes all his revenue from eating. But the sport is also relatively new. And I don't see uh, anyone else other than the Shea brothers doing a better job of getting myself personally opportunities to entertain the military or to be in a video game or to do things that um, I could not do uh, myself.
3: Um, uh, first of all, just a couple of things. Oh, uh, I'm assuming that everything that you just mentioned, being in The Sopranos, being on Letterman, those are things that have happened to you?
4: Yes. Those are all actual things. I mean, it's like the... of prize money given out. That's actual prize money versus the imaginary ad revenue dollars that are created by the juggernaut that is Nathan's on ESPN. So all the things I mentioned I've done.
3: I mean, that all sounds great, although just to be clear about analogies, Ray John Rondo is uh, part of a collective bargaining agreement with the NBA that really does specify you know, a whole bunch of things, some of which may work to his advantage, some of which may work to his disadvantage. Um, you, you guys right now are probably closer to what uh, World Wrestling Entertainment has been for a long time, right? Your work for hire, you, you, You're the contract that you have isn't really an employment contract, and it's certainly not worked out through collective bargaining, right? Well,
4: we— the the big issue and the issue with Takaru Kobayashi was not a financial one. I was with him and his manager, girlfriend, Maggie, the July 3rd before he was not allowed to compete. And not a lot of people know that he waived his appearance fee and any prize money he would receive. His contract issue was exclusivity, mm-hmm. whereas he'd always been allowed to do contests outside the U.S., there were things that had changed. He had a Canadian hot dog company, not Nathan's, interested in him being a spokesperson. And that ran against what was in the contract of of being exclusive to major league eating. For most eaters, you're not allowed to do restaurant challenges. Eat a nine-pound burger and get a free T-shirt or your picture on the wall so that if there's a burger contest in that same city, major league eating provides the exclusive eaters. Kobayashi's was much different and that's what led to the split but for me I have no interest in eating a giant pizza or a giant burger to get a t-shirt. I'd much rather be in an actual pizza or burger eating contest at a festival or at a place that you know is worth the um, time effort and prize money.
3: Barry Rothbart, um, you know, one thing that uh, you know we're talking in the first segment about whether this is a, this is a sport, how difficult it is, uh, what kind of training goes into it. One thing I, I didn't uh, stress with you or ask you about, just to give uh, us a sense of how difficult this is from a more average person's point of view, obviously Crazy Legs Conti is in the upper echelons of this sport. You tried this, right? You actually tried competitive hot dog eating. How, how, how was it? How did it go?
1: Uh, it was disgusting. It was, uh, it was really difficult. And I, I give a lot of credit to anyone who could try this. Um, what I did was I first tried it without knowing anything about training, um, about how to prepare. And I ate about 10 in 10 minutes, um, which is well below, um, what the record of 69 is right now. So it was very difficult. And then I did it again where I actually attempted water training, which is, um, and I don't know if, if, um, crazy Legs, explain this because I can't hear him when he's speaking. But he, um, I, it's it's where you drink a lot of water to stretch your stomach, and then you, you basically vomit it out. And you know we show this in the film. And I tried it, and that's very difficult as well. So I did it again, and I ended up eating about 15 hot dogs in 10 minutes, which is not very good. Compared to what some of these pro guys eat,
3: no, it isn't. Crazy legs. Do, do you do that—that that water, str- that drinking the um, water, stretching the stomach no. thing? Yeah, no, I do not. That's uh, incredibly
4: dangerous. Um, you can get hypotemia. You can get brain float. You know, we don't uh, encourage or endorse home training with food, and certainly, I would never recommend anybody to ingest more water than you know what the acceptable daily amount is. So. Part of being a competitive eater is being responsible for your body, everything you put in, every bite, chew, and swallow, and anything that you've heard in terms of esoteric training methods. When I was, um, you know, first starting out, people talked about putting ice cubes to widen your esophagus or eating uncooked rice to let it expand. All of those are dangerous, bad, unhealthy, and will not help you eat any more food at the competitive eating table.
3: All right, that's a perfect segue for, A, a break, and, B, um, a conversation uh, about the medical aspects of this. So uh, we'll do, do that. We'll come back. Uh, we'll have more of Crazy Legs, more of Barry, and uh, we'll introduce you to Dr. Mark Levine.
2: about competitive. Eating. When they talk about competitive, sorry, I'm training for the Greater Atlanta Peanut Butter Eating Contest in August. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Brittany Hill and Katie Pikas, who appeared in our intro with Sir Ray Hardman, Betsy Kaplan, Patrick Scahill, and Lydia Brown. The part of Bill Curry was played by Joey Chestnut. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff speed-eating prosciutto-wrapped shrimp with basil and grilled peaches plus two delicious wines at $20 and under, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, a new way of thinking about prodigies. And now, back to Colin.
3: All right. In just a second, you're going to meet uh, Mark Levine. He's the chief of gastrointestinal radiology at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, but before we do that, um, let's go back to Crazy Legs Conti for a second. So uh, we know that you do about 40 of these uh, events Uh, these contests per year. We know you've done things uh, like uh, eat seven bags of popcorn in 12 minutes, uh, 2.71 pounds of French cut green beans in six minutes, and 3.5 pounds of pancakes and a half pound of bacon in 12 minutes. uh, That plus the hot dogs plus the this plus the that. How's your health these days? How do you feel? Uh, My health's very good. I am
4: uh, 43 years old. I go to the gym. I jog. Um, I am in better shape now as a competitive eater, learning about nutrition, learning about exercise than I think I was 10 years ago or when I first started. And we would go to all-you-can-eat buffets or we would use food as an excuse because we could eat a lot. So I think now I realize if I'm going to have an occasional burger or pizza, it's really going to be the best of those foods that I'm going to eat natural foods and avoid processed foods, and I'm going to, you know, work out to remain healthy.
3: Um, Let's uh, talk to uh, Dr. Mark Levine. I I just introduced him uh, two seconds ago, so I won't go through that all all over again. Um, This is something that Uh, probably hasn't been looked at a lot by the medical uh, profession because it's such a small subculture, but it seems to be a subculture, subculture, a sport, an activity, whatever we want to call it, that's on the rise. Um, There are just obvious risks. Crazy Leg Conti talked about a few of them, just in terms of uh, ingesting huge amounts of water. Uh, But there are lots of other risks for strokes, jaw injuries, choking deaths, um, a whole bunch of possible things that could, could conceivably go wrong. So, um... Mark Levine, before we talk about what you you have studied, um, what's the state of sci- medical science about this whole world of competitive eating? I'm assuming it's something that hasn't been looked at a lot.
0: And uh, Thanks, Colin. Mm. Um, first, I want to apologize. I'm in the midst of a bad cold, so there's no truth to the rumors that physicians don't get sick. Right. And I may be coughing a little bit intermittently, and I apologize. But the reality is that there's been virtually nothing in the scientific literature on um, on this subject, except for a review that we did um, after we had the opportunity with National Geographic, um, uh, in which they uh, produced a show called The Science of Speed Eating, and they actually brought down one of the top speed eaters in the world at the time back in 2006 or 2007 and brought him to the University of Pennsylvania so we could try and look at the compelling question, how do speed eaters eat so much so fast? That was the big question. And we actually put uh, this speed eater through a simulated uh, speed eating competition in which I actually fluoroscoped him uh, as he did a hot dog eating uh, simulation. And the hot dogs were coated with a small amount of barium, which is is opaque, so we could see it on the x-rays and try and figure out what's going on in the stomach. And what we actually showed, it was incredibly dramatic and spectacular, was as this speed eater kept rapidly ingesting these hot dog pieces, the stomach, instead of contracting and peristalsing the way it normally does to break down food that enters the stomach so it can pass into the duodenum and small bowel, instead, his stomach was this flaccid, compliant receptacle that just kept expanding almost indefinitely to accept this huge amount of ingested food until it was this dilated sac that filled almost his entire abdomen. It was really very, very dramatic. And at least in the case of this speed eater, enabled us to see that he was able to consume this enormous amount of food, not by emptying his stomach more rapidly, but by having this incredibly compliant stomach that just kept expanding almost indefinitely to accommodate all this food. Now, the problem was that we only, uh, through National Geographic, were able to look at one speed eater. So good science doesn't depend on a sample size of N equals one. So we really had a very small sample, one patient, and yet the findings were so impressive and dramatic that our suspicion is that this is how many uh, speed eaters are able to do
1: it.
3: Um, so you're, but you're also uh, part of the expression breaking off one small piece of this puzzle. That's sort of the essential gastroenterological structural stuff that's going on while you're eating. There's so many things that are going on while they're eating, and I'm going to throw it over to Crazy Legs again for just a second. So when you're eating hot dogs. Uh, I, I read one article that said that uh, you exceed the recommended fat ingestion, you know, in the first 30 seconds of, of a competitive style hot dog eating, and you exceed the sodium limit in the first 45 seconds, uh, and, and then you keep eating, you know? And so you're ingesting insane amounts of sodium, just among other things, which has got to be ratcheting your blood pressure up pretty high. Um, I mean, do you worry about stuff like that? Or, or do you just sort of think, well, you know, if I were in mixed martial arts, uh, instead of this, uh, other bad stuff would be happening to me. Well, the first
4: thing to say is in all competitions, uh, maybe we didn't bring it up, but there's an EMT, even when I do one minute of media. So in terms of the fears of choking and things like that, in 13 years, I've never, the EMT has never been called into service. Um, In terms of the consumption that you're talking about, uh, a lot of it is really mind over stomach matter, where if we were at a barbecue and... You said, here's 30 hot dogs and buns. You have all afternoon to eat them. I don't know if, I, I know I wouldn't want to. I don't know if I necessarily could just casually eat 30 hot dogs and buns over five hours. But in the notion of 10 minutes of competition, I am capable of doing that or attempting that. How does that factor in in terms of the fat, the salt, the changes in the body? Well, again, I think it goes back to 40 times a year I'm doing this. Those are 40 large meals, call it the anaconda diet. Um, the physiological changes that will happen in my body are somewhat elastic. And within a day, you know, on July 5th at 5 p.m., I may not be hungry, but I'll have a salad to get back into the notion of masticating and eating again. So I suppose if I had to have one body part be a, you know, flaccid and compliant, I guess my stomach would be okay.
3: Um, Mark Levine, there are so many things that can go wrong with uh, your GI system. Uh, and um, as we age, we find out what some of those are. But um, the, you know there, there, there seem to be a lot of uh, immediate concerns here. Now, we're talking to a very disciplined man, uh, at least in a certain way, and talking to Crazy Legs Conti. Uh, I'm assuming not every competitive eater is that disciplined. And, and in some ways, uh, the, the ones who are using the water method to stretch their stomach are interfering with the elasticity uh, of those muscles. Uh, uh, there, there are there are things in our in our um, system that provide the sense that you call satiety, right? You've eaten enough, um, and, and I'm assuming long term, if you mess with that whole system the way these guys are doing, you're messing with a whole bunch of things, including that notion of satiety that that some of these guys may wind up uh, unable to tell most of the time when they whether they've eaten enough.
0: I think that's that's exactly right, and I think that. Um If, again, if we look at the speed eater we worked with, I have to give him tremendous credit because it took phenomenal willpower and self-discipline on his part to train himself for these competitive eating contests. I don't think that it's secondary to an innate ability for speed eaters to expand their stomachs. At at least, uh, I don't think that's the major... Uh, factor. I think what it really relates to is an intense training period in which uh, these speed eaters uh, eat larger and force themselves to eat larger and larger quantities of food until they basically overcome the usual checks and balances, that feeling of being sated that prevents the rest of us from eating another bite. And one of the side effects of this is that as a Speed Eater, the, the uh, subject that we worked with, he no longer ever felt full when he ate a normal meal. And he was very thin and trim and in great shape. He was, he was working on, I think, in Wall Street, and he was uh, uh, dating a lot, and he kept himself very slim. He did this by just putting measured doses of uh, food on his plate and stopping as soon as he finished what he thought was an appropriate amount of food, but it's an amazing thought to think that he no longer is experiencing the usual pleasures of just getting full and sated when you eat a nice meal, and this really takes me to what is my concern about uh, speed eating, And, and admittedly, I'm speculating, again, because this isn't science based on one patient, but the speculation is what happens to competitive speed years over time what happens if 20 or 20 years down the road he loses that willpower and self discipline because he no longer cares when he's 55 and not 35 about how he looks he's married he engages in binge eating because he can eat all the pizza or ice cream he wants without ever becoming sated the concern is one that this can lead to Morbid obesity at some point down the road, with all its associated complications, and any, and another really big concern I have—it's a potential concern—is what if from years of competitive speed eating and participating in these competitions, the stomach finally reaches a point where it becomes this huge, dilated sac, incapable of returning and shrinking to its normal size. What happens then? Does the patient, does the speed eater experience intractable, recurrent nausea and vomiting because he can never empty his stomach normally? Is it something that could eventually necessitate surgery requiring resection of some or even all of the stomach? I mean, those are obviously...
3: Do- Huge issues. We're going to have to sort of wrap that up there, Dr. Levine. Uh, I, I wish I could let Crazy Legs and Barry respond. Watching the documentary, I will say, you do get the feeling as though, you know, as interesting as all this is, this is an activity to which there's going to be a day where something like that actually happens, and then there'll be another taking of stock about it. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. Uh, Betsy Kaplan, Kyle Wolf, and our interns will be back tomorrow.
2: I'm Kyone Wolf. After winning the Vidalia Cup, I'm on to my next conquest, eating the most pistachios, shelled pistachios.